Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Why don't we start with the Clippers and the Jazz? So the Clippers beat the Jazz last night, 118 to 104, and that ties up that series. Now, there are a lot of things I could talk about when it comes to the Clippers and what they got done. In fact, what they're getting done. We could talk about their offensive execution. We could talk about how finally they're locking in defensively. We could talk about them going small ball. We can talk about the job that Clipper assistant Chauncey Billups has done in coaching Paul George up and turning him into a playmaker. This is why Chauncey is getting some attention and run as a possible head coach. Or we could talk about the fact that the Jazz came out and they were just flat. I mean, they were flat. They couldn't hit any shots early on. They fell into a big hole. We could talk about any of these things, but really there's only one thing to talk about, and that one thing is this thing. Seven to shoot. Kawhi makes his move. Oh, wow. Tell you what, if the guy himself were here, he would say, throw it down, big man. This is a game played by big men for the ultimate prize. Throw it down, big man. Let me tell you something. Dudes, go to jail for less than that. That was assault and battery. Do that on the street, and they're putting you away for a very long time. That might have actually been better than the jam job that Kawhi did to the Mavs in the first round. The fifth best record in the NBA and a ton of it. Runner gets the steal. Three on one. Kawhi slams it down. Hanging in his room. Somebody get that baby out the street. I see you, Kawhi. Man, this dude's coming to life at just the right time. Just the right time. I mean, you wonder how big that was. You want to know how badly that dunk reverberated around the association? Check out Joel Embiid. Joel is talking to the media post game, and as a reminder, Joel is playing in the Eastern Conference semifinals against the Hawks, and he's out there on a shredded knee. He had a really tough second half, so he's doing his due diligence. He's talking to the media, and out of the corner of his eye, he sees Kawhi go Kawhi, and he could not address it. I just, it just felt like I didn't have it uh, tonight. Uh, and of course, you can, you can kind of, oh my God. See that duck? That's it, Jim. Thank you, Jim. See that Kawhi duck? Oh, it's crazy. Man. Wow. Um, but you can say, in the beginning of the- my man, Joe, this is why this guy is a total pro. Never mind that he's out there on a shredded knee doing what he's doing, doing his best. This guy's in the midst of a press conference after a tough game. Saw the dunk, interrupts his flow, interrupts his press conference to talk about the dunk itself, and then goes right back to answering his question. I have not heard a big man interrupt himself to talk about somebody else's play that was happening live since Joe's teammate, Dwight Howard, did that on this show back in the day. Could you see where somebody might cry during the regular season? Oh, I'm sorry, Jim Rome. Kim Milwaukee just won the game. That was incredible. Oh, wow. Check out Dwight doing his thing, conducting an interview here in the jungle with me while seeing Kemba Walker send Gary McGee to the morgue and then continuing on with the interview. And Joe was not alone. Miles Bridges, no stranger to nasty dunks, tweeted, quote, Kawhi 
ain't just dunk him like that. Actually, Miles, that's exactly what he did. Like, my man's out here just abusing fools and having a good time doing it. I'm pretty sure that Kawhi laughed in dude's face right when he threw it down. Seven to shoot. Kawhi makes his move. Oh! <laughs> oh major Kawhi lights! <laughs> Look at him, man. He's laughing at him while he's doing him all wrong like that. Listen to that one more time, Alvy. It's incredible what we have. It's incredible what mics pick up these days. Seven to shoot. Kawhi makes his move. Oh! <laughs> Why not, man? That was a dunk with authority. That was a dunk that was a statement. If you've seen the tweet from the Clippers account, you know what I'm going to talk about next. I'm talking about the facial expression from Donovan Mitchell because it was perfect. Like if a picture is worth a thousand words and Mitchell's face says about a billion words in that photo. And most of those words are variations of, oh, damn, or, oh, crap. Or, oh, hell no. And as always, I'm not here to clown the guy who got dunked on, ever. I'm not about that. I've got nothing but respect for Derek Favors. He went up to contest contest the dunk. He knew there was a good chance he was going to end up on the wrong end of an NFT. And he did. But that's his job. It comes with the territory. It happens to everybody. It's nothing to be ashamed of if you're Favors. The only person who should be ashamed in a situation like that is the guy who bails, is the guy who does not do his job, the guy who will not contest the dunk in that moment. Guys who duck out of plays and want to avoid getting dunked on are the ones who deserve to get clowned. So take it easy on favors. Get off this guy's back. He was just doing his job. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that place was under the basket, and that time was when Kawhi Leonard was throwing down on his head. That summed up the Clippers' performance last night. Man, they were aggressive. They were not settling. They had a rhythm. Guys were hitting shots. But because they are the Clippers, and Clipper fan can never really fully experience bliss or joy, there was a problem. Problem being Kawhi's knee. It appeared that he injured it when he was driving on Joe Ingles in the second half, and he did sit the final 435 of that game. So, how big of a concern is that? Kawhi said, quote, I'll be good after the game. So, I guess that's good news. But you know Clipper fans, they're not going to stop worrying until that team gets to Salt Lake for Game 5. Oh, and speaking of Game 5, being in Salt Lake, Marcus Morris said his twin brother Markeith is not going to be on the road to watch the Clips in Salt Lake. Quote, he won't be coming to Utah. I don't know anybody that wants to go to Utah. Uh Uh-oh! Uh-oh. That's going to wake up Salt Lake fan. Hello! Check out my guy Marcus Morris doing a mini Joe Noah impression. Problem is, man, you got to finish what you start, big dude. That's only the start. If you're going to go there, if you're going to bring that up, if you're going to say, my bro ain't going to that town then you got to go all in. you got to go full Noah. I need him to follow up with the obvious. Quote, you think Utah's cool? I never heard anybody say, I'm going to Utah on vacation. What's so good about Utah? You like it? You think Cleveland's cool? I mean, I never heard anybody say, I'm going to Cleveland on vacation. What's so good about Cleveland? 
tell you what, I don't agree with that. Although I do agree with Joe Noah generally. And I don't agree with the take that, hey, man, who wants to go to Utah? There's a lot of good stuff in Utah. A lot of good stuff in Utah. In the wintertime, in the summertime, Salt Lake, great skiing, great hiking. Anyway, anyway. And speaking of Joe Noah, Ritt, weren't you on that? Weren't you on that? Didn't you get close to that, Ritt? Still on it. Ritt, man. Ritt's like, yeah, man, I got a beat on this. I think I can get Joe Noah. You think? I haven't seen it, man. Bring it on, old man. Anyway, you know you have yourself a series. Not when that series gets tied up, but you know it's really a series when not somebody loses at home for the first time, but it becomes a series in reality when somebody insults the other team's city. Then it's on. And as good as this series has been, there is still another level it could reach. Come on, Marcus. Let it rip, big dude. So running to the store has been pretty stressful of late, right? And there is nothing worse than forgetting something on your list and then needing to make another trip. Shopping for home essentials should be easy and convenient. This is where Grove Collaborative comes in. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. And Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and the planet. I love Grove. I want these products. I'm not sure where to get these products, or at least I didn't know until I found Grove. Making the switch to natural products has never been easier, and for a limited time, when you go to grove.co slash Rome, you will get to choose a free gift with your first order of 30 bucks or more, but you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash Rome to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash Rome. He is Sam Amick. My man, Sam, what's going on? How are you? Roman, good morning, my friend. Doing great. Thanks for having me. Sam, listen, you have covered sports for a long, long time. You know that one of the things that athletes hate talking about is injuries. So I am not going to start the conversation by asking you about the fact that you are playing (laughs) through pain right now. I will double back and get to it later on. Let me start with the Clippers. They've won two straight. They are headed back to Salt Lake. How have the Clippers looked to you in tying up this series, Sam? Um. Wonderful and confusing all at once. Uh, I actually spent part of my morning, you know, having those kinds of conversations about that team and just the roller coaster ride they've been on. You know, they they didn't show this kind of play and spirit for a lot of the regular season, and so you don't know what you think of them. And then they, you know, they get down two nothing to Dallas, and you think they're cooked, and this whole thing's going to fall apart. They show that grit. They fight back. They win that series, and then lo and behold, you're down 2-0 again. Um, but I mean, in the here and the now, they've obviously appeared to have found something. You know, they're starting the game smaller, and, and Ty Lu and their staff has obviously, from an adjustment standpoint, righted some of the stuff that was tripping them up in the first couple of games. And just in terms of the competitiveness and the way they go out there and do their thing, I thought last night was extremely impressive. You know, Donovan Mitchell having a combined four points in the last two first quarters, I think has been huge because it's setting a tone where the Clippers are getting out front, you know, and there's a dominant feeling to it and, and they're able to sustain that and, and even this thing up. 
Sam Amick is a senior NBA writer for The Athletic. So, Sam, like, does that mean the Clippers have, in fact, figured it all out? Or do you still not trust them? And is it still a game-to-game thing with that team? I mean, I'll probably be a game-to-game thing attitude guy up until they start getting at least closer to reaching expectations. You know, when this team first was constructed, as you know, Nobody was sitting here going, gosh, it'd be nice if they got to the second round. You know, this is a championship approach with two guys in Kawhi and Paul George that, you know, we're supposed to get them there. And they've obviously tinkered around the margins quite a bit, moved some characters in and out. And even last night, it's kind of wild to see, you know, Rajon Rondo in street clothes. You know, I think he was dealing with the knee, but still not playing a prominent part. You know, it's a guy that a few months ago, they thought that was going to be an X factor, that he could set the table for some of the other guys that are wonderful scorers, but not the playmakers that he is. And that plan hasn't worked, but, you know, now Reggie Jackson's out there playing, you know, the best ball of his life. So uh, it's just they have so much uncertainty with the role players that it's hard to sit there and say, oh, this is who they are, this is what they are um, because of that variance. We're talking to Sam Amick. You know, Sam, the thing is, obviously, as you know, that not every 2-2 series is the same, right? So if you're Utah and you're heading back playing without Mike Conley Jr., are you pleased to be tied 2-2 heading back to Salt Lake City? What do you think the vibe is like there and the mindset for them? Probably not um, because I get the idea that, all right, we took care of home floor and we're still even. The thing that I think in general has got them – I'm kind of, you know, speculating, but down in the dumps a, a bit at the moment is that, you know, who knows if I'm wrong, but I, I don't get the sense that Mike Conley's, like, I think it's a fairly serious hamstring strain. And not having Mike, as we've seen the last two games, is a major factor. And I, I feel like Donovan, you know, in, in the wake of him missing so much time with that ankle injury going into the playoffs, missing game one against Memphis, you know, he had like a superhero quality to him for darn near six games when they went 6-0 and with him once he got back. But you're starting, I think, to see some of the fatigue. The playoffs is a long haul, and he, he's not out there doing it by himself, but you know he's not getting the kind of help that, that they wanted to give him when Mike Conley was part of the program. And add on to that the fact that the ankle has been an issue you know, here and there during these games, that would worry me if I was the Jazz. And, and with the momentum the Clippers have, and at least with their core, having seemingly figured out what they need to do, I think they're in a tough spot. And I didn't think that a few days ago. But right now, uh, you know, it just wouldn't shock me at all to see the Clippers finish this thing off like they did the last series. Sam Amick is joining us. You know, Sam, I'm not going to take anything away from anybody who does survive this war of attrition and finish it off and win. But when I think back on this postseason, I think in ensuing years, I'm going to think about it being a postseason of guys in street clothes. You talk, for instance, about Brooklyn, right? Reports this morning indicate that James Harden is going to test out his hamstring before tonight's game. Like, he was out. He was upgraded to doubtful. Where do you think that stands? I mean, does that seem realistic to you that he could give it a go? And if so, how effective do you think he could be? Um, I would be incredibly wary. I mean, you know, okay, he might get out there. But we've seen before. First of all, that's the injury that had him on the shelf for so much time before the playoffs. And like people have pointed out, you know, we kind of got tricked into thinking that, well, the Nets, even though they had all these injury things all throughout the regular season, they were finally getting right at the first, you know, at the right time, and then they were going to be on their way. Well, there's kind of a kinetic energy component to their whole roster where they're all dealing with stuff, and they can get back on the floor for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, 
but then something else pops up. And with James and any person like a Mike Conley who's dealing with a hamstring, even though you look out on the floor and you see them, you don't know what version of them it is, you know, um, and how susceptible they are to re-injury, how slow they are from a defensive standpoint, which the Nets have improved a lot on that end of the floor in the playoffs. So even if he's out there, I think, you know, it's the kind of thing where I'd be smelling blood on the other side, and, and we'll see if that happens, how he looks. Sam Amick is joining us. Sam, what about this? Like, for instance, if he can't go and if Kyrie can't go, obviously they're a very, very different team. and They're not nearly the threat they might be. But then in Kevin Durant, I mean, if it were the start of a series and you're asking Kevin Durant to take on Milwaukee and win four times, that's not happening. But you know that he's a transcendent player, one of the best to ever do it, arguably maybe nobody better scoring the basketball. Guys like that can win a game. Guys like that can maybe even win two games. Does Durant have that in him to go superhero and maybe somehow get them through this round if he doesn't have the other two? I think he does. And, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to go down the conspiracy theory road, but he's going to need a little help from the guys with the whistle. You know, it's, it's going to come down to what kind of defense is PJ Tucker allowed to play against him? You know, you already saw after the last game, Steve Nash doing that age old coaching tactic of talking points in the media about the officiating and saying that, some of the stuff P.J. Tucker was doing wasn't even basketball. And, you know, that's obviously intended to get the attention of the league and set the tone for the next game. So if P.J. is, you know, unable to do his thing and, and rough Kevin up the way he did and really kind of has the last couple games, then that's, I mean, then Kevin's going to destroy you. And, yes, maybe he can do his thing by himself until he gets some help. But uh, it, it's crazy. So many of these series, Jim, have just completely flipped. I mean, we were ready to start – talking about Mike Budenholzer being in trouble and having a coaching change in Milwaukee. And, you know, and now they're on the other side of this thing. And um, I don't want to bet against Kevin, but if he doesn't get help at some point, I think it's going to be hard. I think you're right. Sam Amick is joining us. All right, Sam, so let me double back. At the end of May, you and your family went to Hawaii. Now, this was a trip that had been planned back when it seemed like the NBA season was not going to start until January. But because you were all vaccinated and school was over, you decided to go ahead with it. What was the initial plan for the trip? Good old-fashioned uh, week in Oahu. We, we like to go up to uh, the Koalina area on the West Shore. And so just, you know, snorkeling, hiking, all of the above. And, and because the playoffs were... Going on, it was going to be mixed with me, you know, using the iPad to keep track of things and, and working a little bit, but not too much. But, yeah, the plan did not exactly go uh, as planned. No, so it's it's a great idea, right? Good quality family time. You get outside. You go somewhere beautiful. You have your iPad. You stay plugged in. You and the family go for a hike in southeast Oahu. What happened? So, the, what is that? The Monowili Falls Trail, highly recommended, beautiful. We did get to the waterfall, which was incredible. Uh, on the way back, I'd say in totality, like hour and 45-ish in terms of the whole hike. And uh, we're about 15 minutes from the trailhead, and I step on a tree root that had grown above the, uh, the ground. And, and I have the kind of ankle sprain that I've had dozens of times in my old pickup basketball career. And so that, I mean, it was a bad sprain. It, it certainly, the, the pain was at a high level. Uh, but initially I'm thinking, all right, I've been through this a million times before the, the part where it got a little scary, a little dicey was I then proceeded to get extremely nauseous very quickly and, and dizzy. Uh, thankfully I sat down rather than, 
forging ahead on the dicey hiking trail. But I sit down, and then it's like the movies where all of a sudden the, the lights go out. I'd never passed out or blacked out in my whole life. So it was uh, it was a lot. I mean, I was out for like one to two minutes. I wake up, and the, the family's pretty spooked because they thought it was something more serious. And uh, the short version of the story, Jim, is you, you know how this ends. I, I wake up, and, and now the balls are already in motion when it comes to the medical response. They've, the family's called 911. They inform me that we got a bird coming. We got a helicopter on the way. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, guys, what are we doing here? Like, it's, it's a sprained ankle. And, and I literally called 911 back to, uh, to kind of you know, plead my case and, and say, let me just hobble out of here and learn the hard way that, that they don't mess around out there. If you get hurt on their public hiking trail and they, uh, they're worried about you, and, and they were worried mainly about the blacking out part, then, uh, then they come pluck you out. So they, they, they gave me the Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible experience. They put me on a big table and literally pulled me and dangled Dude. me out of the forest for like three miles. It's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely insane. Like, and also to that point, Sam, normally you keep it PG-13, but when you got hurt, your 14-year-old son said things got a little bit blue and that you were saying things that included the F and the B and the sh, but mostly the Fs. And, you know, as a father, like I can remember when I was a kid growing up, when my dad let go with an F-bomb, I never forgot that. That that made a real impression upon me. So, I mean, again, just so we're clear on this, when you came to and your wife and kids called 911 and you were airlifted out of there like Ethan Hunt, man, what was that like? It was insane. I, I wish I, – so I wasn't – I'm pretty shameless, Jim, but I wasn't shameless enough. I was tempted to take a video on my cell phone of the, of the flight. But you got to imagine, I'm literally sitting there strapped into like a canvas diaper, for lack of a better way of putting it. My, my youngest son now likes to call me Captain Underpants. He thinks it's hilarious because of the, the setup that they put me in for the chopper. And the medic uh, or the EMT guy who was helping in kind of my escort on this thing, you know, obviously a total stranger. He's now got his legs spread and we're kind of like in the weirdest, uncomfortable position possible you know, in this getup and, and they, they pull me up and I am thinking to myself like, okay, where's the pulley system to where they put me in the helicopter? And it's like, Oh no, they're just literally going to hang you probably 300 feet above the earth. So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like this would be unfortunate if I plummeted to my death because of a turned ankle. Thankfully that didn't happen. They then flew, I don't know the distance. This is about three, four minutes. And they flew to a nearby park. And uh, the, the worst, most embarrassing part was that I was hoping it would be an empty park where I could limp away in solitude. And lo and behold, we get to this park and there's a blacktop, naturally, and there's like a full run of pickup basketball. And these, these guys stop their game and just basically look up into the sky and it's like, you know, who's this pansy that's getting dropped in the park? It was it was a lot, brother. God, that's insane, <laughs> Sam. That, that is so much. So really quickly, like you said, in yeah. your in your local runs back in the day, you know you've had sprained ankles, but you right, see, right. like, how severe this can be. Does this mean, like, when you look at LeBron and Donovan Mitchell and what they've dealt with in terms of ankle injuries this season, do we not then underplay the severity of ankle injuries too much and not give them the respect they deserve? Yeah, I think so for sure. It really has. I mean, I knew, you know, I've had them before, but this one was different in that regard. Like Donovan Mitchell in particular, I find myself watching him really closely now because, I mean, again, I know it's apples to oranges to compare something like this to that, but it's an ankle's an ankle. And as we speak, you know, I'm nine days out, I think nine or ten days out from the injury. I ditched the crutches two days ago, and I'm getting there. But as you called, 
I'm in Manhattan Beach, and I was trying to make my way down this road to go check out the beautiful scenery. And, I mean, I'm moving incredibly slowly. And so it's that thing where, yeah, Donovan came back, but only he – I mean, how many times does the media ask him about the ankle? And obviously he shuts it down, doesn't want to talk about it. But you know it's more tender than he lets on. And LeBron was very similar. Like, I think if he had a healthy ankle, maybe they survive against Phoenix. I think it was that big of a factor. And, I mean, so, yeah, the answer to your question is we – we don't truly take it into account. And, I mean, those are those are the wheels. That's the thing that is, if you had to pick a body part, you know, it's hands and feet for these guys is how they get the job done. And now Kyrie as well. He is a senior right. NBA writer for the Athletic Sam. I'm very happy that, well, that that wasn't your time. It's never up to any of us to decide when it's our time. Thank goodness that was not your time. Your family has a story. Your son can talk a little junk. It's all going to be good and come back. I appreciate you coming on. I'm glad that you're all right, man. Thank you, Romy. I appreciate you, brother. Hey, listen, are you craving some protein after a good workout? This time, do not make a shake. Don't grab a bar. Instead, reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty. It's tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And Old Trapper is a family-owned business. They take their smoked beef extremely seriously. You can taste it in every single bite. Like, who wants dried out, rough, tough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal. And it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned, Teriyaki, Peppered, Hot and Spicy. So the next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, just grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper with your beef. Why don't we talk about Major League Baseball and the grip problem? It's coming to a head. Former smack-off participant Jeff Passan reported last night that baseball is ready to crack down on players that are caught using spider attack, pelican grip dip, and homemade glue. Apparently this time, the powers, they ain't playing. They're bringing the lumber. You continue to load up the rock, you're getting hammered. You see, MLB has seen enough. They've had enough. It was embarrassing when they looked the other way throughout the entire Royd era. There's no way in hell they're going to let that happen again. Well, actually, they did let that happen again. They let it happen again when it was determined that the Astros were cheating out their asses. And MLB then took all sorts of heat for not punishing the Astros players who were involved in the cheating scandal. In other words, if it's possible to jack up a sensitive situation, Major League Baseball will every single time. With that in mind, and they know this, and they know that's the way they've seen. They have themselves another situation, except this time they're going to handle it. This time there will be hell to pay if you're caught cheating. No more looking the other way when players are shooting each other up with bullroids or banging on trash cans. Hell no. If you continue to load up the baseball, here's what's waiting for you this time. According to Jeff Passan, and I quote, Major League Baseball is expected to announce Tuesday that it will suspend players caught with any foreign substance for 10 days with pay. End quote. Hell yes. Hey, cheaters. Tell the commissioner how his ass tastes. Tell me how my ass tastes. Yeah, let me tell you about Rob Manford. This dude's got a hammer. He's not afraid to swing it. Dude is coming in hot. 
Let me repeat that. You cheat, you get wrecked. Quote, Major League Baseball is expected to announce Tuesday that it will suspend players caught with any foreign substance for 10 days with pay. In other words, if you continue to cheat and jerk with the fabric and integrity of the game, you're going to get exactly what's coming to you. Namely, a vacation. Namely, a paid vacation. Way to go, Kamish. You've done it again. Nice deterrent. If I'm a major league pitcher, and I've got this little baseball meth garage, and I'm cooking up something sticky to glob onto the baseball, and I know it's cheating, I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to weigh the risk versus the reward. The reward is I cheat. I create high spin rates. My team wins. I win. I get paid. Now, as far as the downside, and you got to weigh that, right? As far as the risk goes, if I do all of that in my little baseball meth garage and I get caught, I get a paid vacation. Damn, tough call, man. They catch me and then what? I rest, I recover, I get to skip a start, and I get paid. All right, get me my freaking beaker. I've got some more homemade glue that I've got to cook up. Man, Major League Baseball at its best. That's the punishment? 10 days off with pay. What? An all-expense-paid trip to Cabo? Didn't want any of that? 10 days off with pay for a pitcher. It's a joke. That's not a deterrent. That's a vacation. That's not a punishment. That's a reward. It sounds like something that happens if a guy meets a sales quota or wins the month. And sells more than anybody else. It's not what happens when you get caught cheating. And yeah, I know. I know why the league can't exactly drop the hammer and ban pitchers who are caught. Because a ton of pitchers would get caught. And suddenly you'd have to switch to guys hitting off tees. Or the batting practice pitcher would have to start games. Or the old man would have to sit on a bucket off to the side and soft toss guys. Because there'd be no pitchers left. Because they're all doing it. But whose fault is that? It's their own fault. Baseball's fault for doing what they always do, looking the other way, putting their head in the sand until it's way too late to do anything about it. Like, they let this go on for so long, now almost everybody's doing it, allegedly, so they can't just come in, out of left field, and shut it all down in the middle of the season. Like, it's a problem of their own creation as usual. I've seen this movie before. Baseball never learns from its mistakes. So, why did they allow this to go on for as long as they did? And why are they only now getting around to cracking down on all this goop? Well, for one, the spin rates on pitches got to such an absurd level. The numbers are so absurd that the league-wide batting average was 236 through June 3rd. Nobody wants to pay good money to return to the yard to see a bunch of guys going up to the plate and striking out every single time. 
And then what about the rule? There actually is a rule. It goes all the way back to rule 3.01 and rule 6.02C in the MLB rule book. Rules that have long been ignored, but only now are beginning to be enforced. Rule 301 reads in part, quote, no player shall intentionally discolor or damage the ball by rubbing it with soil, rosin, paraffin, licorice, sandpaper, emery paper, or other foreign substance, end of quote. So you're not allowed to discolor or damage the ball by hitting it with dirt, rosin, paraffin, licorice. (laughs) Can I stop right there? Only baseball would need a rule that says the guys can't drag licorice out to the bump to mess with the ball. Licorice. It's like the most baseball thing ever. Is there a rule in hockey that says you can't douse the puck with Mike and Ikes? Did the NBA have to stop guys from rubbing red vines and Twizzlers on the ball? Hey, how about that time the NFL had to crack down on players trying to string fruit by the foot through the laces of the ball? And the licorice mention obviously is in there for one of two reasons, right? Either some kook got busted rubbing horrible candy all over the ball, Or they knew that if they didn't include it on the list, somebody would bring out a few sticks of the black stuff and rub it all over the baseball. Because guys will do whatever they can to get an edge. Licorice. As always in baseball. If you're not cheating, you're not trying, and it's only cheating if you get caught. And by the way, you're probably never going to get caught. Because nobody in baseball ever really gets caught for anything. Including roiding, banging on trash cans, and licorishing and covering themselves in homemade glue. You might imagine, right? The pitchers are pissed off after doing it a certain way for years. I mean, literally years. Now they have to relearn how to pitch without their licorice at the drop of a dime in the middle of a season. Man, they've been so reliant on rubbing themselves down with industrial glue that they don't even remember what it's like to pitch without that stuff. That is so Major League Baseball. It's literally the most Major League Baseball thing ever. Allow rampant cheating for a long time, and then when it becomes too rampant, you have no way to stop it. No way to fix the problem. Baseball at its best. But the best part of all is, there is a rule about not being allowed to bring licorice to the mound. Hey, you want to hear something incredible? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically and with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards, that's where. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. There's nothing worse than going household for all the wrong reasons. Nothing worse than being a rather anonymous soul who instantly becomes synonymous with something truly regrettable that will follow you around for the rest of your life, and especially if it's not really your fault. It just kind of happened. It's kind of unfortunate. I'll give an example. Do you know the name Bo Burrows? Bo Burrows. Bo Burrows is a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Check that. Bo Burrows was a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. 
And there's probably nothing more anonymous than pitching for a last place team that has not made the postseason in a decade. So, (laughs) you don't believe me? Why don't you ask that one dude, oh, what's his face, who threw that no-hitter last month? Like, I would tell you his name, but like the rest of the world, I forgot. That's how irrelevant they are. If not for my guy, A.J. Hinch, would they matter at all? Would they make a sound at all? Like, so irrelevant at this point, you can spin a no-no, and nobody will know who you are. You'd be forgotten about almost the second the last out was recorded. Like, I don't even know this guy. Just kidding. Spencer Turnbull. Kinda. Sorta. Not really at all. Anyway, back to my guy, Bo. Bo Burrows. So, dude comes into the game Saturday in long relief. It's his first big league appearance of the year. It's a blowout. It's an 8-2 game that his team was losing. My guy, Bo Burrows, went all Bo Hurls. I have never seen anything like it. My man started to kind of choke up on the bump, took a walk to the back of the mound, and started yakking all over the place. Well, Burroughs looks like he's sick. In fact, I'm pretty wow. sure he is. First time in the major leagues this year, and the emotions of the moment got the better of him. I'm going to check on Burroughs. Oh. AJ Hinch probably saying, you know what? Go in, take care of yourself, and we'll bring in somebody else. Yeah, A.J. Hinch was probably saying, go in, take care of yourself, and we'll never see you ever again. I mean, I feel badly for dude. I'm not here to pile on. Man, throwing up sucks, right? (laughs) Throwing up sucks. The only thing worse than throwing up is throwing up in front of people. That really sucks. But throwing up on the mound because you've given up a couple of runs, a couple of hits, and a walk, and you're just not dealing with the moment... And the pressure is too much. And you can't swallow all of that acid, which is forcing its way up your esophagus and out your mouth. While TV cameras are pointed all over you. And the announcers are actually doing play-by-play of your projectile vomit. And you eject your soul all over the rubber. That's about as bad as it gets. Or so I thought. Because then it somehow got even worse. Because my guy AJ not only gave this guy the hook, he gave this guy the bus ticket. One thing to have a bad day. One thing to get overwhelmed by the emotion of the moment. Like, I guess that'll happen. Although I've never seen that happen. But I guess that'll happen because it did happen. But it's one thing to get pulled off the bump because you're puking your your nerves all over the place. And the skipper knows you're cooked for that day. Everybody has a bad day. But entirely another for that same skipper to send you back down to the minors because he knows you're cooked for the foreseeable future. Man, that's not a good way to go. When someone asks Bo Hurls if he left it all on the field, he can absolutely say, yeah, (laughs) yes, I did. Hell yes, I did. Even to the point of, He could point to the part of the field where he left it all on the field. Yo, my man hurls. When the manager brings you out of the pen in a blowout for mop-up duty, it's a figure of speech. It's not a casting call. You're not supposed to projectile vomit your insides all over the dirt and then go mop it up. Like, I understand the show is the show. I understand it's the highest level of the profession. My man mixing some Pepto. 
Keep it together. Get it together. And, and I know there's probably a couple of you that are like, dang, Rome. I mean, give the guy a break. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know. It's got to be nerve-wracking. Except it is the job, right? You worked your whole life for that moment. You worked your whole life to get into that game, in that blowout. And, and can we be honest about something? Hey, I'm not saying that anxiety is not a real thing. Like, we all feel it. We all feel it. We're all nervous. I'm no different. I do too. You, me, everybody. Except that wasn't exactly Game 7 of the World Series. That was an 8-2 to two blowout, and you play on a crappy team. Now, of course, if you're keeping score at home, and I don't know why you would be, but that's a career stat line of 8.1 innings with an 8.64 ERA for Bo Hurls. And now after getting shelled, throwing up, getting hooked, and getting sent back to the minors, hopefully he can keep his ERA and his lunch down. He came into the game as Bo Burrows, major league pitcher, and then you left as Bo Hurls, minor league prospect. It's a tough weekend. Now, Bo, before you get upset with me or anybody else, before you get upset with me, let me share a little story with you. We actually have something in common. I also hurled at an inopportune time. It goes back about a year, in fact. And it's taken me all back now because I'm going to revisit the scene of the crime. You see, I went to Wisconsin last summer. I had never spent any period of time in Wisconsin. I'd been there before, but I'd never spent more than a few days. I spent a couple of weeks. I started to do as the locals do, namely eat. Eat and drink. And when I say eat, I mean eat fat. I mean eat cheese curds. I mean eat fried pickles. I mean like no protein. Nothing. Basically the RIT diet. I ate in Wisconsin Mm. what RIT eats every day in Cali. So one day um, with my guy. My dude, Matt Coleman, who is the legend of Eagle River. And so Matt and I are having a good time, and we're, we're trying to be responsible. Matt is the guy who kind of introduced me to tequila. Matt, Ed Milet gets some um, credit for that. Adrian Gonzalez. I'm late to tequila. I'm late to that party. Tequila is something that normally I would just end up at once or twice a year on a bad night. Lately, now it's kind of a go-to, right? Clean burning fuel, be careful, be responsible. Yeah, well, I wasn't careful nor responsible that night in Wisconsin. So I got into it. And you know how much I got into? Enough that we thought it was a good idea to make a Dairy Queen run. And for whatever reason, and I'm not sure what it is other than it's the dairy capital of the world, the DQ in Wisconsin does not taste like the DQ in Cali. The DQ in Wisconsin tastes like, well, I've never had it, but if I knew what crack tasted like, it tastes like that. So, Bo, my man, I'm not here to pile on. Let's just say that I had the same thing happen to me that happened to you. It just happened to happen to you in the workplace with every camera pointed at you. It happened to me in the middle of the night as I was in the midst of REM sleep. All of a sudden, I had the same problem you had. It all came rushing up in a mad, furious dash up my esophagus. Luckily, I was able to maintain and keep it down. Lesson learned. Luckily, it was under the cover of night in my bedroom and there were no cameras on me. However, dude, let me just say, I feel you. The thing is, though, I didn't get demoted. 
They didn't send me down to the minors. In fact, in Wisconsin, they respect that. They promoted me. I was thought and held in much higher regard when I told that story the next day in and around northern Wisconsin. They're like, hell yeah, hell yeah, Rome, you are one of us. We thought you were some soft, cowy little bitch. Oh, you're one of us, dude. If you're throwing up in your mouth in the middle of the night because you had too much ice cream, you are one of us. Anyway, Bo, I feel you. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. Stephanie Epstein is my guest. Stephanie, nice to have you on. How are you? Thanks a lot for having me. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good, good. I'm great. So you've been all over the issue of pitch doctoring, and earlier this month you co-authored a piece for SI's Daily Cover with the headline, This Should Be the Biggest Scandal in Sports, the inside story of how rampant pitch doctoring in MLB is, pumping pitchers up and deflating offenses, end of quote. So when did you first start working on this topic, and what tipped you off? We actually started working on this uh, several months ago, either January or February. We So we've run two stories on the topic so far, the one you mentioned, and then one about uh, an Angels clubhouse attendant who was fired for providing sticky stuff to pitchers across the league. And so we started working on the second one first. Uh, We reached out to him several months ago, and then as we were reporting that, it became clear that this was this was really two stories, and they were much bigger than we had understood at first. Uh, And so that is... That's kind of when we started to get a sense. Everyone we talked to was saying kind of the same thing, which was, this is a huge problem. All right, so I'm going to try and get back to that clubhouse attendant in a moment. But as you write, pitchers go into the training room before games, quote, to swipe tongue depressors, which they use to apply their sticky stuff to wherever they choose to hide it, then return afterward to grab rubbing alcohol to dissolve the residue. Like, what kind of sticky stuff are they using, and then where are they hiding it? This is serious, like, glue-like stuff. Uh, the big one is called Spider Tack, the stickiest one, and that was actually developed for World's Strongest Man competitors who are trying to lift those gigantic Atlas stones. Uh, it is extremely sticky. Like, you could touch, uh, you could put it on your hand and touch a cinder block, and you could lift a cinder block with just the palm of your hand. That's how sticky. Uh, and then they are mostly putting it, it, everybody's got a different spot, and so... That's one thing that a lot of teams start to do is they try to get scouting reports on where the guy keeps it. But it's the most common one is on the inside of their glove. A lot of them manage to keep some of it on their hats. Uh, some guys have it on the inside of their belt buckle. So if you see them kind of adjusting the tuck on their jersey a lot, sometimes they're going to sticky stuff. There are some guys who have it on shoelaces. Some guys, if they have dark socks, will keep it on their socks. It's really... They can find almost anywhere to put it. I heard unconfirmed reports of one guy who keeps it in his mouth, which sounds just foul to me. That sounds foul to me as well. Stephanie Epstein joining us. That story about the cinder block is unbelievable, but there's so many unbelievable stories. For instance, one National League reliever said that he used his Pelican grip dip and was pulled aside by airport security. Quote, they swab my fingers, and this is after showering and everything, and they're like, hey, you have explosives on your fingers. I'm like, well, I don't, but I'm sure that I've got something that's not organic on there. End of quote. That to me is insane. Like, what? 
What was your reaction as you were working on the story? Were you ever stunned or did this all kind of make sense to you? No, that was the one that caught me the most off guard. I actually had that conversation fairly late at night. And so I was hoping my plan had been to go to bed after conducting that interview. And I was so taken aback by it that I just stayed up and wrote it because I couldn't I couldn't fall asleep. I couldn't stop thinking about this. Uh, This guy was getting stopped at airport security. I mean, these are really this is some sticky stuff. Really sticky stuff. So another recently retired pitcher said that, quote, 80 to 90 percent of pitchers are using some level of grip enhancement. I mean, does that number sound right to you? And if so, how did this become so widespread? Yeah, I think that that seems about right. That about reflects what we heard from other people. Um, I think I think it's important to differentiate between the levels of grip enhancement there. There's the spider tack that we were just talking about, and that really is a performance enhancing substance. But there are also guys who are using just a little bit of, you know, if you spray your arm in sunscreen and then you mix it with the rosin that they give you, you can make a sticky substance that way. And that that does, it's, it makes you a better pitcher because it helps you get a grip on the ball. It helps enhance your command, but it's not, it doesn't make the ball spin in a way that hitters have never seen before. So I think that of the 80 to 90%, uh, probably a bigger portion of that group is using the lower grade sticky stuff and it's a it's more of a minority using the really sticky stuff but it's a it's a healthy minority i think uh part of why it's gotten so bad recently is the pitchers have always been using something but they never really knew exactly how well it was working they were mostly guessing in the last couple of years we've had really good technology that has become available to players on an individual level where they can apply something to the baseball and then go throw and watch the trackman numbers and they can tell right away that gave me an extra 200 RPMs on my spin rate my fastball. This is working. Or that didn't really do that much. Let me try something else and see if I can have more of an effect. And so that level of technology has made them into real scientists about this, I think. And that is where they've, they've basically maximized the efficiency of this. And that's why it's become such a problem. Stephanie Abstein's joining us. I was going to say to you, like, MLB has not done anything about this at all until the last few days. So why have they essentially been looking the other way, and now is that pendulum, or why is that swinging back? I think they looked, I think they, because as I said, it got a lot worse over the last two or three years. I think they've been kind of caught off guard. Like, everyone has known the pitchers were mixing sunscreen and rosin or hiding pine tar on their gloves, and that, everybody felt, was not that big a deal. You want them to have some kind of a grip. The baseballs are very inconsistent, and they're pretty slick, and you'd like them to know where the pitch is going. But over the past few years, I think the league started hearing from team officials saying this is this is a big problem. And I think they also started to realize that it's it's not just sort of a problem in general. It could actually be contributing to the existential question the sport is facing, which is how boring it can be to watch. Uh, there's no there's very little offense. And part of the reason there's very little offense is that the pitching is too good. And part of the reason the pitching is too good is that they're using these sticky substances. And so the hope by the league is that if you can crack down on the substances, you might not have to move the mound back or make the bases bigger or do any of these other things that they've been talking about because they really want to increase offense. They want fans to be more interested. And maybe just enforcing a rule that's on the books will get them there. See, that's my thing. I think that's where it's at. Like, if you were to say to me, why why now? I think for that very reason, because they've got a collective batting average around the league of 236. That's not good for business. Now, as you point out in the piece umpires rely on managers to ask for an inspection of the opposing pitcher, but managers don't want to do that because they know their guys are cheating too. So where does that leave everybody? Where we are right now, I would say. So the league just actually issued a memo today 
saying umpires are going to be doing this on their own. They do not need, uh, they don't need the managers to ask for it. They are empowered to make these checks on their own. And I think that is a big reason because nobody, as we've seen, nobody wants to say anything because not only are your pitchers doing it, but you might want to acquire that pitcher at some point, the pitcher that you're calling out. And so you can't really, for, you know, you want to maintain good relationships with people around the league. So there's just, it's been a no-win situation so far. And so they really need to, and, you know, it's not an easy job to ask the umpires to be the ones going out there and doing it. But the league is trying to make the point that the, that the league will stand behind them when they do this. So a couple of quick thoughts, and I, I could do this all day long. This is really fascinating. But what do you suppose, Stephanie, happens to the pitchers who have been really effective with the sticky stuff and the ability to get really high spin rates? Are they in danger of getting knocked around without the sticky stuff? Yeah, I think there are a couple of options here. One is the two ways to control a baseball when you're throwing it really hard are to use sticky stuff or to take something off it and throw a little bit less hard and try to command it. And so some of them, I think, will probably do that. And so you'll see velocity go down a little bit. And some of them will just throw it that hard and not really know where it's going. So I don't know that that will necessarily mean more hit batters, but I do think it might mean more walks. And that might change the personnel we see a little bit. The because, you know, some of these stars are going to be good anyway. But a lot of where we've seen a change is the marginal guys, the guys around the edges who suddenly are unhittable. And if they can't use sticky stuff, then they may start calling up. Te- teams may not go to the guy who can throw 100 but doesn't know where it's going. They might start calling up a guy who can command the baseball a little bit better without help. And so you might see a different looking uh, pitching core across the league right so finally quickly the other piece that you mentioned was you wrote about Bubba Harkins who was a clubhouse attendant for the Angels he was fired last April after 39 years with the team what was the explanation given for his dismissal they said to him you know an, an investigation has concluded that you have been distributing sticky stuff across the league and so you were fired and he said yeah I have been distributing sticky stuff but everybody was doing it and so I thought that was okay so if it's as widespread as everybody says, why is this guy the only guy who's been punished? I didn't really, we didn't really get a good answer to that question, I would say. Uh, it, I think that's, we'll see if that changes over the next couple of weeks as they start enforcing. But yeah, at the moment, the only guy who's really been punished for this is, uh, is a clubhouse attendant. We have a lot to talk to Bruce Feldman about, as always. Bruce, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well, Jim. Good to be on with you. Great to have you on. All right, so Bruce, last week the college football playoff working group, playoff working group, officially endorsed playoff expansion. There have been talk about expansion for a little bit. What was your reaction when the group endorsed a 12-team playoff? I think, Jim, what it really is shaping up as here is the biggest power brokers at, at the table, and that's really Greg Sankey, especially from the SEC, are looking at it saying, you know what? We're gonna have we're gonna have one or two teams in the four anyway. Let's see if we can get four in twelve. Maybe even some years potentially five in twelve. And so on that end, I think it it satisfies the people on the top of the food chain. I also think you have other aspects of this. If you're the commissioner of the Big Twelve or the commissioner of the Pac Twelve, you're like, you know what? We didn't have a seat at the table before. Now it's not a guarantee our conference champion is going to get in. But there's a much better chance we're not going to get snubbed if our conference champ is ranked number ten and they're nine and three, or or in that case ten and three, or even nine and four. You're still probably some level of inclusion because really what's gone on a lot in the last couple of years, Jim, 
you can hear people talk about Alabama and Clemson fatigue, but I think what has troubled a lot of people inside the sport is that you roll into late October, uh, early November, and a lot of the games that would be seen as marquee games in certain parts of the country feel largely irrelevant unless you're a diehard fan of those particular schools. And this is a way that the people who run the sport of college football are hoping, at least, that they could keep more eyeballs and more people engaged in the sport that has definitely got a lot less engaged in the last couple of years with the playoff as it's taken shape. I think there's so much really interesting stuff in what you just said, Bruce. Bruce Feldman joining us. Let me just ask you this. Knowing how these things typically go, are you at all surprised by the speed that this is all uh, coming together and how quickly it's taking form? Not, not especially because, look, there's been some chatter about expansion for a while, and I think we're coming out of a pandemic where – what you learned was a lot of people would sit and look at the landscape and say, all right, well, we can, we can shuffle this as quickly as needs be. And I think you, you learned a lot of people could be very reactive if they have, had to be. But also what you're looking at is there was a major financial hit that people around college athletics took. So how do you work around that? Well, there's a lot of money that is potentially – that, that has been left on the table if you opened up the playoff, not just from 4 to 8, but maybe from 4 to 12. And now the question is going to be how quickly could they green light this and get it going? I doubt that they can do it any earlier because they said this in their statement, that it would get to the beginning of 2023. If they hold off a little longer, then they can bring it more to market and try to get even more money out of it. But I think there's a lot of stuff that is happening right now in college athletics, especially you have NIL name, image and likeness that's coming down the pipeline. You've had a lot of other changes that have been made. So right now you're seeing new commissioner in the ACC. You have a new commissioner coming in in the PAC 12. You just had a new commissioner really getting his feet set in, you know, in, in the big 10 and Kevin Warren. So this is a pretty chaotic time in the sport, especially. And so I think that adds to why there has been such a shift. We're talking to Bruce Feldman. You know, Bruce, in other sports like, well, for instance, the NBA in particular, there's this sense that having a couple of power teams or dynasties is good. You talked about fatigue, like Alabama fatigue. Is the dominance of Alabama and Clemson good for college football? And if not, how can that be changed? Long term, I don't think it's great for college football because I do think there are going to be a lot of people who just they're tired of seeing the same matchups over and over again. I, I think take Nick Saban's program and for what they've done has been unprecedented in an era of uh, scholarship limitations and everything else. It's very different. But then you tack on the Clemson part of it. It's like I think people I don't think they want to see this as Lakers Celtics of the 80s. I think they want to see some other programs challenge it. And if you don't see any new blood in there, it starts to feel stale. It is great if you're a fan of Alabama or if you're a fan of Clemson. But if you're not, I think you kind of roll your eyes at this and say, okay, this is the rich getting richer, and this is just how the system is set up. Um, and so, I look, I think there's a lot of people who may not be Oklahoma fans, but they would love to see – Lincoln Riley and Oklahoma breakthrough or just somebody else. I mean, look what happened when LSU, you mentioned the book I did, look what happened when 
LSU got on that roll with Joe Burrow and Joe Brady, and they put up ridiculous numbers, people got excited about it. It's not because they were big LSU fans, you know, at heart. I think it's just because they got behind New Blood and they saw, you know, Joe Burrow light up Nick Saban's defense in Tuscaloosa. And people hadn't seen anything like, like to that degree um, on the roll they went on. And then they, they, then they lit up Clemson. And I think that got people excited um, because it was different. And so I think people are looking for that a little more now. And, and that's probably, you know, who knows if we're going to get that in 2021, though. Bruce Feldman joining us, different is good, and Joe Burrow special. Let me ask you this, Bruce. For instance, could you see a scenario where the 12th seed actually wins the national title, or is the gap between 12 and 1 just too significant for that to ever happen? I think it's a big long shot, Jim. I mean, the one example that I look at, and they wouldn't be a 12 seed, they might have been a 10 seed, would have been that USC team like five years ago with Sam Darnold's uh, first year as a starter. He did not start the season. Remember, they began the season playing Alabama in, in, uh, in Texas. Max Brown was the quarterback. They got lit up. It was like 52 to six or 52 to nine. And then they struggled. And I think they were one in three before Sam Darnold got rolling. But then they went on a run. And, you know, look, you had a really, you know, a tremendous quarterback. You had Juju Smith-Schuster, who was a difference maker at receiver. I don't think they were that good on defense, but they were a dangerous team. I mean, remember, they, they had a great game against uh, Penn State. No, you know, Saquon Barkley and Tracy Shorley in the Rose Bowl. I think they had a puncher's chance of beating anybody by the end of the year. Now, could they, could they have improved by so much to have gotten a rematch with Alabama and won that game? Probably not, but, you know, I think they would have had probably a better chance than almost any other double-digit seed of winning what would be a playoff because a lot of times I think you're looking at teams that just don't have enough special players to do it, where in that case you have a special quarterback you definitely had a special receiver, and I think you had pretty good skill guys around it. I just don't know if they had enough on defense to do it. We're talking to Bruce Feldman for a few more moments. All right, so since I have you, Bruce, before I let you go, shifting to some action on the field, you reached out to a bunch of coaches around the country to talk about the breakout stars for the upcoming season. Who were the names that kept coming up? Well, there's one that really kind of came out a lot from guys in the Big Ten, and that's Jack Campbell, who's a linebacker from Iowa. I was had really good players there. Josie Jewell, people remember. This was a guy who was expected to start last year, but then had mono and ended up didn't play a ton. The people inside the program are like, he's huge. He's six, almost six five, two forty five. Runs like a deer. As tough as anybody they coach. Super high football IQ. That's a guy people rave about. Uh, there's a young receiver at Oklahoma, Mario Williams. You know, he may not be quite as as straight line fast as Hollywood Brown, but probably quicker. You know Lincoln Riley's going to be really good at scheming some stuff to get him open. Uh, He's one who has a chance, I hear, to be really, really special. Uh, Then there was some other names that Zach Charbonnet, people may remember him at at Michigan. He's a Southern California running back who decided to transfer back home to UCLA He's a big back who has really good quickness, who has looked really good this offseason in Chip Kelly's offense. I think he, he has a chance to really uh, really get people's attention because now all of a sudden they probably have the best offensive line they've had in a long time there. Um, 
those were some of the names. I mean, it's just like you would hear certain guys either something, uh, you know, it was almost like their time. DJ James is a cornerback at Oregon. Oregon is an interesting team right now because they have a bunch of guys that Mario Cristobal's recruited, especially on defense, who are five-star guys. People know about Kayvon Thibodeau, the edge rusher, but then you got Noah Sewell and Justin Flo, who are big, huge former five-star guys. But then they got two cornerbacks who are five-star caliber athletes, and DJ James is probably the one that gets most overshadowed. And talking to people up there, they just rave about what kind of athlete they have there. And remember, this is a team that's going to have a big game in Columbus against Ohio State early in the season. And how well a lot of these young players, especially in the back seven, play against Ohio State, which will have a new quarterback. Obviously, no more Justin Fields. It's going to be a very intriguing matchup early in the season. I can't wait to see that matchup. Bruce Feldman, my guest. Bruce, one last thought, if you don't mind, and it's great to have you back. Another change that's taking place, of course, is the number of players getting into the transfer portal. How are coaches and programs dealing with the new transfer landscape? It, it is such a juggling act because you hear stories um, from everything about middlemen getting involved. Some, player, some, some guys are shopping players around, and the players don't even know it. I think the hardest part for college coaches is two things. One is you see names in the portal, yet you don't really know what the background or the, what, what the situation this player may have had of why they're leaving. You may know a little bit, but I think so they got to do their due diligence. And then it's like, hey, we really like this player. We really think they could help us. The problem is there isn't enough, enough spaces to take them all because there are so many guys in the portal and you still have to juggle a 25-person initial counter with all the high school kids you signed in the winter. So there's going to be a lot of players who had scholarships at, at FBS Division One programs who are probably not going to have places to land because there's just not the – it's just not the scholarship availability. So you're going to end up with a lot of players probably left out of scholarships because maybe they thought, okay, they had this, this school offered them out of high school, but you know, two years later or three years later, those offers aren't going to, a lot of times aren't going to be there because the schools just don't have that kind of roster flexibility now. Covering so much ground, he is a reporter for Fox Sports and FS1. He is a national college football insider for The Athletic. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and his latest book, of course, Flip the Script with Ed Orgeron. Bruce, great job. Great to have you back. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Good night now!